Hi, dreamers. This is Nick. And this is Andy. And we host The Concession Stand, a podcast from two guys who work in the TV and movie business right here in Los Angeles. And you're listening to California Dreaming, true crime tales from the Golden State on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats, their all-new PowerPress Deluxe sites, a no-setup WordPress website for your podcast, and it comes with all of the necessary links to share your show with the world built right in. Head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up for media hosting, a PowerPress Deluxe site, get that podcast you've been dreaming about started, and get your first month for free. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream. And now, on to the show. On March 3rd, 1991, I was a junior in high school, kind of just meandering through my days with my small circle of friends. I'm pretty sure I was obsessing over New Kids on the Block at the time. That was right before grunge music was about to hit big and reign over my senior year. But at this point, I was still all about Donnie, Danny, Jordan, Jonathan, and Joey. I was never into the school spirit stuff. I didn't go to games or rallies or dances or any of the activities I thought that were pretty lame. I had been a licensed driver for about three months and I had a part-time job after school. Nothing really that sensational going on for me at the time. So that March 3rd, that was a Sunday. The night before, if I had to guess, I was probably up late watching what would be arguably one of the greatest decades of Saturday Night Live ever. But I likely didn't make it all the way through. What I would have never known at the time, what nobody would have ever known if not for a man named George Holliday, who noticed an incident involving some police activity unfolding outside his balcony a few minutes after midnight that night. Something was happening that was going to change a lot of lives for a long time to come. So he picked up his Sony Handycam. Not everybody back in 1991 had video cameras at the ready, but Mr. Holiday, a recent immigrant from South America, he had one. He wasn't out looking to catch anybody on tape doing anything wrong. As a matter of fact, having grown up in Argentina, he was sort of conditioned to expect aggressive police tactics. But what he was filming wasn't the way he thought justice was done in the United States. If you get pulled over, you get arrested, and you go to court. In the United States, in his mind, what he was witnessing, capturing on his video camera, this couldn't be the way American police handle a motorist, is it? So, while I was dozing off that March 3rd, 45 miles away, at the intersection of Foothill Boulevard and Osborne Avenue in the city of Lakeview Terrace, a motorist named Rodney King was being pulled over by a bevy of LAPD officers after a brief chase. What Mr. Holiday caught on tape next 
was 81 seconds that would become a landmark moment for the ongoing debate on race, law enforcement, and equality. In today's episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the beating seen round the world. Early that morning, Rodney King was driving a 1987 Hyundai Excel with two friends, Bryant Allen and Freddie Helms, on the 210 freeway in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles. They had spent the evening watching basketball and drinking at a friend's house. At approximately 12.30 a.m., husband and wife, CHP team Tim and Melanie Singer, witnessed Rodney's car speeding on the freeway. I don't know if they clocked his speed or if they could just tell by looking that he was over the speed limit, but either way, they followed him, eventually catching up and attempting to pull him over. This eventually turned into a pursuit because Rodney refused to pull over. He would later admit that he attempted to outrun the police because he knew he was driving under the influence and he was on parole at the time. He knew getting busted on a DUI charge was a violation. Fearing his parole would be revoked, Rodney chose to lead the CHP on a high-speed chase that, according to police, reached speeds of 115 miles or 185 kilometers per hour. Now, right away, I'm a little bit skeptical because I'm not sure I believe a 1987 Hyundai could reach speeds of 115 miles per hour. I mean, have you guys been in an 87 Hyundai? I had a friend who had one, and I'm not convinced based on my observations of my friend's vehicle that it could reach those kinds of speeds. And I think it was a manual, and I believe it only was a four-speed. But I don't know. Maybe Rodney's Hyundai was fully loaded? Perhaps. Well, Rodney himself, many, many years later, would admit that he did indeed get close to 100 miles per hour, so maybe it is possible. Rodney exited the freeway near Hanson Dam Recreation Center and the pursuit continued on surface streets into a residential area with speeds ranging from 55 to 80 miles an hour or 88 to 128 kilometers per hour. After a few more miles, he was cornered near the intersection of Foothill Boulevard and Osborne Street. The first five officers to arrive on the scene were Stacy Kuhn, Lawrence Powell, Timothy Wind, Theodore Brissino, and Rolando Solano. Surrounded by LAPD squad cars, Officer Tim Singer ordered Rodney and his two passengers out of the vehicle and to lie face down on the ground. Both passengers would later claim that they were hit and manhandled as they were trying to get out of the car and onto the ground. One of them was later treated for a laceration on his head. Rodney was the last to emerge from the car. And when he did, based on his actions while exiting the vehicle, officers quickly determined that Rodney was resisting arrest. Police also reported that it appeared he was reaching for his back pocket, so Sergeant Stacy Kuhn fired his taser into Rodney twice, but that apparently failed to subdue him. CHP officer Melanie Singer 
the one who along with her partner and husband had first spotted Rodney speeding, leading to the pursuit. She pulled her weapon and pointed it at Rodney, ordering him to the ground. In her later statements, she described what she witnessed. She said, when Rodney got out of the car, he first appeared jovial, smiling, laughing, and dancing. At one point, he grabbed his buttocks and paraded in front of them. He appeared to be heavily intoxicated and seemed very strange. As she approached Rodney, she said Sergeant Coon told her, no, no, get back. We'll handle this. He pulled rank and took over tactical command of the scene. And that's when Coon shot Rodney twice with the stun gun, and he stumbled to the ground. Officer Powell then ran up and struck the suspect on the right side of his head with his baton. Rodney then clasped his hand to his face and screamed in pain. He was bleeding. Officer Powell then struck him five to six more times in rapid succession in the head and neck area, and she further described the blows as causing his face to split open. She recalled that Rodney appeared to be less resistive, even considering him disabled. At that point, none of the LAPD officers gave Rodney any instructions on what they wanted him to do. She asked Sergeant Coon if he had called for an ambulance and he said, no, not yet, or that he will or we're in the progress of doing so, or something to that effect. Another CHP officer on the scene suggested to the singers that they write down the names of all the police officers there. She then stated that she and her partner slash husband turned their backs to Rodney so they could keep an eye on his two passengers. They would not find out about the 50 or more subsequent blows that were caught on video. They were unaware that the beating had continued, stating that she was not a witness to any of that. Later on, the CHP officers who initiated the traffic stop in the first place had assumed that they would have jurisdiction over the case, as they were the ones who began the chase on the freeway. But when Officer Singer began her paperwork and she was talking to Rodney in the hospital, Sergeant Coon went over and told her that they were going to handle the arrest. When Sergeant Coon took command of subduing Rodney, he ordered that the police officers place their weapons in their holsters. Now, LAPD officers are trained that when approaching a suspect, they are to do so without their gun because of the chance that the suspect may gain control over their weapon when the officer gets too close. Sergeant Coombe then commanded the four other LAPD officers on the scene, Powell, Racino, Solano, and Wind, to subdue and handcuff Rodney using a tactical maneuver called Swarm. This means multiple officers are to grab a suspect with empty hands in order to be able to quickly overcome potential resistance. As the four officers made an effort to restrain Rodney, he resisted by standing up and trying to get Officers Powell and Brasino off his back. The officers would later testify that they thought Rodney was under the influence of drugs, such as PCP. But... Rodney's toxicology test results were negative for any type of disassociative drugs. As soon as Rodney attempted to get up when the officers attempted to restrain him, he was tasered twice by Sergeant Coon. This would be the approximate start of the incident that was caught on Mr. Holliday's videotape. On it, Rodney is seen on the ground. 
he appears to get up and lunge towards Officer Powell, appearing as though he was either trying to flee from the scene or to attack Officer Powell. It's all a matter of who you choose to believe. Either way, the two collided when Rodney made that lunging move. In the video, you can still see the taser wires hanging from where they attached to Rodney's body. Officer Powell then strikes Rodney with his police baton, at which time he is immediately knocked to the ground. Officer Powell then proceeds to strike Rodney several more times, at which point Officer Brasino steps in in an attempt to stop Officer Powell from striking Rodney again. So Officer Powell steps back, but Rodney attempts to get up again and makes it to his knees. And again, Officer Powell begins striking Rodney with his baton, but this time, Officer Wind joins in. Sergeant Kuhn orders the officers to continue battering Rodney with their batons, directing them to strike him with power strokes and then back off. However, the officers did not follow the technique as taught. They are trained to use bursts of power strikes and then pause. They continue to strike Rodney and they are seen kicking him in the head on the videotape as well. While police protocol does authorize the use of baton power strikes, the methods used in the video were not within procedural guidelines. In the video, it is clear that Rodney continues to try and stand up, and he would later explain that he was trying to get away from the pain. But Sergeant Kuhn orders the officers to strike him in his joints, wrists, elbows, knees, and ankles. By the time the officers were finished, they had struck and kicked Rodney a total of 56 times. Eight officers then attempted to swarm him again, finally placing him in handcuffs and cord cuffs, effectively restraining his arms and legs. Rodney was then dragged across the pavement while on his abdomen while he waited for paramedics to take him to the hospital. As a result of this beating that Rodney endured at the hands of those LAPD officers, he suffered 11 skull fractures, including a fractured cheekbone, shattered teeth, a pulverized eye socket that became sunken in and required very delicate surgery in order to repair the damage. Some of the bone fragments in Rodney's face were so small, they were like grains of sand. That is how hard his skull had been crushed. The ophthalmologist who oversaw the surgeries to the areas around his eye socket would later say that he was surprised that Rodney withstood the beating that he had taken and managed to survive, further stating that his injuries were consistent with being hit with the blunt force object to the face at least five or six times. When the doctor touched Rodney's face, he could feel the bone dip in very deeply on the right side. Rodney had trouble speaking and could not chew. Also resulting from the strikes to the head, it was determined that Rodney would suffer long-term side effects, including dizziness, headaches, blurred vision, memory loss, and permanent brain damage. Injuries to other parts of Rodney's body included a broken leg, as well as kidney damage. Now, by no means was Rodney a model citizen that night he was pulled over and subsequently beaten. 
It was determined that he was legally intoxicated at the time that he was pulled over. He also had traces of marijuana in his system. He was speeding. He failed to pull over and led officers on an eight mile high speed chase. He was also on parole. Let's talk a little bit about Rodney's criminal history prior to the night of March 3rd, 1991. So in July of 1987, there was a complaint filed by Rodney's wife that he beat her while she was asleep, dragged her outside the house and continued beating her. He was charged with battery and ended up pleading no contest. He was placed on probation and ordered to attend court mandated counseling but he never went. On November 3, 1989, brandishing a tire iron, Rodney ordered a convenience store clerk to hand over all the money in the register. The store clerk managed to grab the tire iron, which caused Rodney to fall backwards and to knock over a display rack. Rodney grabbed the rack and swung it at the clerk, fleeing the store with $200. He was arrested and charged with assault with a deadly weapon second-degree robbery, and intent to commit great bodily injury. In a plea agreement, Rodney pleaded guilty to the robbery charge and the other charges were dropped. He was sentenced to two years in prison. He was paroled on December 27, 1990. It would be only 67 days later, 67 days into his parole, that he would be pulled over and beaten to a pulp by those LAPD officers. Those charges that he racked up that night, whatever they would have been, DUI, reckless driving, evading police, resisting arrest, all while on parole, all the charges were dropped. Rodney's mindset during and after the beating seen around the world was how to survive this. In the ambulance ride on the way to the hospital, he was struggling to breathe because his airways were filled with blood. His injuries were too extensive for the hospital he was initially brought to, so he was rushed to the trauma unit at the USC Medical Center. He was rushed into a five-hour surgery that took three doctors to try and keep Rodney alive. He managed to pull through, but the thoughts came to him. How was he going to be able to tell his story of what happened to him at the hands of the police? How could he prove what had happened? He had no proof. To him, he was just another nameless, faceless victim of police brutality. Little did he know it at the time that his beating and arrest was all caught on tape by Mr. Holliday. Two days after he made the recording, Mr. Holliday called the LAPD headquarters at Parker Center to let the department know that he had videotape of the incident, but nobody was interested in his tape, viewing it or discussing the matter with him. So he went to the media. He turned that video over to Los Angeles area television station KTLA Channel 5. Two days after Rodney King was beaten, the video was broadcasted around the world, making it what some now refer to it as the very first viral video. 
Here's the thing though. The news station cut the first 10 seconds of that video that was out of focus. As it would turn out, it was an incredibly pivotal 10 seconds that shows a very blurry shot of Rodney getting up and lunging towards officers. In cutting those 10 seconds, they conceivably skewed the public perception of what transpired prior to what they were seeing in the video. So this raises the question, would having seen those 10 seconds made anyone think the beating they inflicted upon Rodney King was justifiable? For me, that would be a no. I didn't think it was justifiable 27 years ago when it happened, and I feel the same way now. So, in essence, what would have otherwise been a forgotten encounter between police and an uncooperative motorist became one of the most infamous incidents of its kind, as well as having turned Rodney King into a symbol of police brutality. Following four days of grand jury testimony on March 14, 1991, the Los Angeles District Attorney charged Officers Kuhn, Powell, Brasino, and Wind with the use of excessive force. Sergeant Kuhn, who wasn't involved in the actual beating of Rodney, although he did use his taser on him, and since he was the officer in charge at the scene, he was charged with willfully permitting and failing to take action to stop the unlawful assault. In April of 1991, Los Angeles Mayor Tom Bradley created the Independent Commission on the Los Angeles Police Department, which is informally known as the Christopher Commission, led by attorney Warren Christopher. It was formed in order to conduct a full and fair examination of the structure and operation of the LAPD, including its recruitment and its training practices, internal disciplinary system, and citizen complaint system. The findings of the commission were released in July of 1991, and it was scathing for the LAPD. It's 228 pages long, so it's much too much to go over the whole thing, but there are some key points that I want to mention here. It stated in part, Rarely has the work of an amateur photographer so captured the nation's attention as did the dramatic and disturbing scene recorded by George Holliday's video camera in the early morning hours of March 3, 1991. The morning Rodney G. King, a 25-year-old African-American, was beaten by three uniformed officers of the Los Angeles Police Department while a sergeant and a large group of LAPD, California Highway Patrol, and Los Angeles Unified School District officers stood by. The holiday tape shows the officers clubbing King with 56 baton strikes and kicking him in the head and body. Within days, television stations across the country broadcasted and rebroadcasted the tape, provoking a public outcry against police abuse. 23 police officers responded to the scene of the Rodney King incident. Four LAPD officers, Sergeant Stacy C. Kuhn, and officers Lawrence M. Powell, Theodore J. Brasino, and Timothy Wind were directly involved in the use of force and have been indicted on felony charges 
including assault with a deadly weapon. Kuhn and Powell are also charged with the submission of a false police report. Based on published reports and public documents, it appears that three of the four indicted officers had been named in prior complaints for excessive force. Computer and radio messages transmitted among the officers immediately after the beating raised additional concerns that the King beating was a part of a larger pattern of police abuse. Shortly before the King beating, Powell's and Wynn's patrol unit transmitted the computer message that an earlier domestic dispute between an African-American couple was, quote, right out of gorillas in the mist, unquote. The initial report of the beating came at 12.56 a.m. when Kuhn's unit reported to the watch commander's desk at the Foothill Station, quote, you just had a big-time use of force, tased and beat the suspect of a CHP pursuit big-time, unquote. The Rodney King beating gave immediate rise to a myriad of questions about the Los Angeles Police Department. Concerns were voiced about the openness of the officer's conduct, the presence of a sergeant who failed to control and indeed directed the violence, the puzzling convergence of so many officers at the end of pursuit location after a code 4 broadcast that no assistance was needed, the number of officers who stood by during the beating and failed to report it afterwards, and the radio comments and the computer transmissions before and after the incident that suggest a possible racial motivation and a ready acceptance of excessive force as, quote, basic stuff, unquote by LAPD officers. The commission has found, however, that there is a significant number of officers who repetitively misuse force and persistently ignore their written policies and guidelines of the department regarding force. By their misconduct, this group of officers tarnishes the reputations of the vast majority of LAPD officers who do their increasingly difficult job of policing the city with courage, skill, and judgment. The problem of excessive force in the LAPD is fundamentally a problem of supervision, management, and leadership. What leaps out from the department's own statistics and is confirmed by LAPD officers at the command level and in the rank and file is that a, quote, problem group of officers, unquote, use force and are the subject of complaints alleging excessive or improper force far more frequently than most other officers. So, I wanted to talk a little bit about the charges of filing a false report. We know at the time the officers made their reports about the incident involving Rodney King that they did not know of the existence of the videotape. So when they wrote their reports, the officers and supervisors downplayed the levels of violence used against Rodney when he was arrested. According to police documents, they claimed he suffered cuts and bruises of a minor nature. However, the CHP officers who had first spotted Rodney speeding and tried to pull him over reported that they were so shocked at the brutality of the LAPD officers that they made sure to jot down the officers' names. These reports were a part of the grand jury records after the officers were indicted on criminal charges related to Rodney's beating. 
There had also been calls for the chief of police, Daryl F. Gates, to resign, and I'll talk more about him later. I've detailed Rodney's injuries, but according to the grand jury records, Sergeant Stacy Kuhn, who was the commanding officer at the scene, reported that despite the fact the officers repeatedly struck Rodney, his injuries appeared to be light. In Sergeant Kuhn's daily report he filed before his shift ended that day, he wrote, quote, several facial cuts due to contact with asphalt of a minor nature, a split inner lip, suspect oblivious to pain. The officers delivered a torrent of power strokes, jabs, etc. to arms, torso, and legs, taser going the entire time, finally wore a suspect down. Kuhn also wrote in his daily report that day, always have a backup plan with the use of force. It doesn't always work the way you're trained. Taser doesn't always immobilize. PR-24, or the police baton, does not always cripple, etc. if you do not have a frame of reference. Officers tend to panic when things don't work the way they're supposed to. A backup plan prevents panic, and it don't hurt to have lots of backup, especially with PCP users. It was widely circulated through the media at the time that Rodney was high on PCP. I even thought that for many years. That must have been the reasons why he wasn't immobilized or laying still when told to. But he wasn't on PCP. Nothing more than traces of marijuana and alcohol. In their use of force report submitted by Sergeant Kuhn and officers Powell and Wind, they described Rodney's injuries as contusions and abrasions. They also checked off the boxes that indicated Rodney attacked officers, continued resistance, and increased resistance. However, it appears in the videotape that Rodney is mostly in a position down on the ground as officers circled him and took turns, hitting him repeatedly with their batons. The day following Rodney's arrest, there was more downplaying of the beating. Sergeant Stephen Flores of the Foothill Division was contacted by Rodney King's brother, Paul. He wanted to file a police brutality complaint. In his report, Sergeant Flores wrote that Paul King told him that there might be a videotape of the arrest and that that tape would prove police brutality. He told Paul King that if he found the tape to call us back and release it to the LAPD. But he also wrote in his report that physical force was used in arresting Rodney King, but the force was justified. No further action is recommended until the results of the force investigation are reviewed and evaluated. And unless additional evidence, such as a videotape or a witness statement is obtained. It's also worth mentioning that in all of the reports filed by the police, nowhere is it mentioned that Rodney had two passengers in the car with him when they were pulled over. And the downplaying of the beating continued up the chain of command. Lieutenant P.J. Conmay, the Foothill Division Watch Commander the night of the beating, wrote that Sergeant Kuhn's taser failed to phase King and that he was ultimately subdued after several baton strikes. Now here is the million dollar question. Was Rodney King a threat to those officers? 
Witness statements differ as to whether or not Rodney posed a threat. Two residents nearby, as well as a Los Angeles Unified School District police officer, stated that Rodney acted aggressively towards the police when he got out of the car. The LAUSD officer told investigators that Mr. King was fighting and kicking while on the ground. A nearby resident reported that Mr. King's fists were clenched and he had his hands at shoulder height. He was getting ready to fight with an officer. However, not everyone agreed. Another nearby resident stated, the subject did not display any aggressive behavior. In fact, he appeared to be passive. Rodney's two passengers stated that despite the fact that they got out and were on the other side of the car, they could tell from Rodney's screams that he was under attack. They could hear the whacking sounds coming from the other side of the car and it lasted for three to four minutes. It sounded as if bones were being broken and someone was receiving a busted skull. They also reported that an LAPD officer jeered at them and asked them if they wanted to be like his homeboy. So, the wheels of justice began to turn, and it would not be Rodney King that was going to be held accountable for his actions that night of March 3rd, 1991. He was released without charges. But rather, the cries of justice were being made in the name of Rodney King. Four of the LAPD officers involved in arresting King that night were facing prosecution, but the discipline wasn't going to stop there. By July of 1991, as many as six LAPD officers who witnessed Rodney's beating and did nothing to stop it were relieved of duty and were made to turn in their guns and badges. They were going to have to appear before a department board of rights, and that could very well have resulted in them being fired. Four more officers were suspended for as many as 22 days, and another was given a five-day suspension for conducting personal business on a police computer terminal right before Rodney's beating. Four probationary officers that were hired in 1990 were suspended without pay, and another officer who was not at the scene was suspended for five days. She was the one who sent a series of messages to the patrol car being driven by officers Powell and Wind, the one who received the racially insensitive messages regarding the gorillas in the mist reference. One of the officers relieved of duty stated that the discipline was to be expected, though he is not happy about it, adding that he responded to the scene on a call for help and really saw very little. He went on to speculate that because of the public outcry, this was one way the department can say that they did their part and punished them. That there was tremendous pressure to save the image of the department and repair it. And the overall feeling of those who have been disciplined is that they were being let down by the LAPD. Here's the thing though. The general feeling is that the beating was a criminal act and those officers who witnessed the incident were required to stop the assault and at the very least, report it to their supervisors. However, none of the bystanding officers stepped in to intervene on behalf of Rodney King. And what's more, not one of those officers who witnessed the beating reported it, not until Mr. Holliday's video splashed across the evening news. Police officers have a responsibility to stop misconduct when they see it and to report it. 
Failing to do so is very serious. Oh, and of the four facing trial, three of them were relieved of duty and one of them was fired. Many of the officers who stood by and witnessed Rodney's beating insisted in sworn testimony that they did not think the beating rose to the level of police misconduct. They said that Rodney was aggressive and unruly and that he failed to comply with police commands after he was stopped for speeding and leading officers on a high-speed pursuit. They also reiterated that the use of batons on King, as well as kicking him, was permitted as described in LAPD training. Not only that, it's encouraged when an officer feels it's necessary. So let's stop here for a minute and talk a little bit about the chief of police of the LAPD, Daryl Gates. As soon as Rodney's beating hit the airwaves, calls for Chief Gates' resignation were soon being made, even by the mayor of Los Angeles, Tom Bradley. At the onset, Gates refused. But who was Daryl Gates? He joined the LAPD in September of 1949, and he was chosen to be the driver for Chief William H. Parker, for whom the LAPD headquarters is named in downtown Los Angeles, Parker Center. I could probably do a separate episode about him and his policing styles altogether. So anyway, as it would be, Chief Gates would learn a lot about being chief from Parker, seeing as they spent so much time together. He worked his way up the ranks from officer to sergeant to lieutenant to captain. By the time the Watts riots erupted in 1965, he had been promoted to inspector. He was the lead investigator in some well-known crimes, including the Hillside Strangler and the Manson family murders. In 1975, he was the assistant chief of the Los Angeles Police Department. And then, on March 28, 1978, Daryl Gates became the 49th chief of the LAPD. Chief Gates is considered the father of the SWAT team, the Special Weapons and Tactics Team, a specialized unit for dealing with extreme situations and hostage rescue. He also developed the substantial use of the PDID squad, the LAPD's Public Disorder and Intelligence Division. It's actually kind of difficult to find very much information regarding his development of the division because it was a very aggressive and controversial spying and surveillance division. As a matter of fact, Gates was sued by the Coalition Against Police Abuse, or CAPA, in 1982, along with at least a dozen other plaintiffs, including the LAPD, on the grounds that the First Amendment rights were being violated by the department by utilizing unlawful harassment and surveillance by officers and agents of the LAPD. And CAPA won their lawsuit, and the PDID was ordered to be disbanded. By January of 1983, the LAPD's PDID division was no more. In concert with the Rotary Club of Los Angeles, Gates founded the Drug Abuse Resistance Education Program, or the DARE program. It was designed to educate students about the dangers of drug abuse, and it became a worldwide organization with programs and schools internationally. However, despite the program itself claiming success in reducing alcohol and drug use, government-sponsored research has found it largely ineffective, 
resulting in a huge loss in taxpayer funding. Then there was Gates's crash program. When Gates became chief, it was around the same time that the war on drugs was intensifying and gang violence evolving primarily around drug-related issues paralyzed many Los Angeles area neighborhoods, especially impoverished Hispanic and black neighborhoods where gang activity was most prevalent. Gates's answer to the issue was to set up specialized gang units, which was tasked with gathering intelligence on and running operations against gangs. These were the Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums, aka CRASH. The program was effective in quashing gang violence, but there were many allegations of false arrests, and with that, the LAPD was perceived of having it in for young Black and young Latino men, as the LAPD had a very low percentage of minority officers at the time. So with that, Gates and his department became synonymous with the use of excessive force, and many of you know that the LAPD became the target of local rap artists such as Ice Cube and Ice-T, who wrote about police brutality and racism in their songs. The CRASH program has largely been deemed a success in suppressing gang violence, up until the Rampart Division scandal of 1999, that is. Now, I don't want to get too way off track from the topic of this episode, and maybe I'll follow up with some bonus content about some of the related issues, like I said earlier, regarding the LAPD in the near future. But I think it's important to understand what was brewing beneath the surface in the years leading up to the night that the LAPD put that beat down on Rodney King, and thus leading to what occurred a little over a year later in the city of Los Angeles. The Rampart scandal, in a nutshell, refers to the widespread corruption in the crash unit of the LAPD Rampart Division in the late 1990s. More than 70 LAPD officers in the crash unit were implicated in police misconduct, making it one of the most extensive cases of documented malfeasance within a police department in U.S. history. Some of the convictions included unprovoked shootings, unprovoked beatings, planting of evidence, framing people, stealing and selling narcotics, bank robbery, perjury, and the systematic covering up of evidence, all by police officers in the LAPD. One of the things Gates was widely criticized for was Operation Hammer, a policing operation administered by the LAPD specifically in the South Los Angeles area. It stemmed from a drive-by shooting incident in 1987 in which eight people were murdered. So Chief Gates responded to that with an extraordinarily aggressive sweep of the Los Angeles area that at any given time involved no less than a thousand police officers. Operation Hammer lasted several years and it included numerous sweeps that resulted in over 25,000 arrests. However, this wasn't the first time this type of action on the part of the LAPD had taken place. Leading up to the 1984 Los Angeles Olympic Games, Mayor Tom Bradley gave Gates the go-ahead to take all of the city's known and suspected gang members into custody where they remained until after the games were over. Even after the games were done, masses of predominantly black and Latino youth were continuing to be jailed. However, the vast majority were never charged with anything at all. Because of that, Operation Hammer was openly criticized as a harassment operation meant to intimidate those they targeted. 
In an interview, Gates was asked if the people in the minority communities expressed thanks to police for their actions, and his answer was as follows. Sure, the good people did all the time, but the community activists? No, absolutely not. We were out there oppressing whatever the community had to be, whether it was blacks or Hispanics. We were oppressing them. Nonsense. We were out there trying to save their communities, trying to upgrade their quality of life. So yes, Gates, like his mentor, Parker, was opposed to the concept of community policing, which is a system of allocating police officers to particular areas of the community so they become familiar with the local residents, thereby creating a rapport with those in the community. He chose not to work with the community activists and prominent individuals in the community in which the LAPD was conducting their major anti-gang operations. The style of policing discouraged officers from becoming too enmeshed in the communities they served, and this did not bode well for the chief politically, as it led to allegations of arrogance and systematic racism that plagued the LAPD through the entire time Gates was chief of police. And this would be strongly reflected in the Christopher Commission report I spoke of earlier, subsequent to the beating of Rodney King by those officers on Chief Gates's watch. Ironically, when Rodney King was getting beat down, Gates was actually attending a conference on community policing. So, when March 3rd happened, when Rodney King was beaten by Gates's officers, he and his department were hit with strong criticisms when the world saw Mr. Holliday's videotape. As one activist so aptly put it, we finally saw the Loch Ness Monster. LAPD brutality finally had a face and the world finally saw it for themselves being shattered by the baton blows of his officers. Mayor Bradley called for Gates's resignation, but he wasn't going to. And this led to a standoff between him and the mayor. But once the Christopher Commission's report in response to Rodney King's beating was issued on July 10, 1991, it underscored a police culture of excessive force exacerbated by poor supervision. It also listed numerous recommendations for reform, one of them being Gates's removal as chief. So, Chief Darrell Gates announced his intention to resign three days later. So, back to the officers being charged in relation to Rodney's beating. Their attorneys focused on moving the trial out of Los Angeles County. Prosecutors weren't too worried about it at first because they didn't think their motion would be granted. And at first, it wasn't. The defense motion to move the case out of LA County was denied. But two months later, after they appealed, they were granted their change of venue request. And not only that, the original judge in the case was removed. As it was widely known, he was biased in favor of the prosecution. As it was discovered, he had sent a message to them that said, don't panic, you can trust me. The case was reassigned to Judge Stanley Weisberg. And there was more good news for the defense. Judge Weisberg scheduled the trial to take place in Simi Valley, quite the conservative, predominantly white community located in the rolling hills of Ventura County, a place many, many LAPD officers themselves called home. 
Prosecutors immediately knew the implications of having the trial move to Simi Valley, and they were worried that this meant that there was already going to be an inherent advantage for the defense when it came to the pool of potential jurors. And both sides knew that the jury selection could be critical to the outcome of the trial. The prosecution needed to seat some black jurors, as they, more often than not, tended to be skeptical and critical of police practices. But the jury pool of 260 people only had six African-Americans in it, and five of them immediately expressed no interest in serving on a jury in what they considered to be hostile territory. And then, the attorney for Officer Powell used a peremptory challenge to strike the one remaining African-American juror from making it onto the panel. What was even more concerning for the prosecution was that nearly all the potential jurors appeared to be supportive of law enforcement. Two of them were NRA members, and if you're not familiar with the NRA, it's the National Rifle Association. That's an American nonprofit organization that advocates for gun rights. So two of the other jurors were retired military veterans. One of the chief prosecutors in the case against the four officers and an African-American complained that everyone seemed to be pro-police and that they all seemed to come from the same background. That's the thing, though. This was the representation from Simi Valley. Definitely not Los Angeles. A jury consultant for the defense called them a gem of a jury. So after months of legal maneuvering and probing questions, a jury of five women and seven men, none of them African-American, and I believe there was one Asian and one Hispanic man on the panel, were chosen for the trial. What's kind of interesting is that in the moment, it didn't seem to have any amount of significant importance to the media when it came to the demographic makeup of the jury. There wasn't a whole lot of speculation in the media coverage of the trial being anything other than a slam dunk. The video was irrefutable, wasn't it? That videotape of those officers beating Rodney was all anyone needed to see for a conviction to be secured, right? As it would turn out, there was way too much confidence placed on that video. It seemed clear to 17-year-old me at the time that it was proof positive that excessive force was used in subduing Rodney King. But... I guess all of us didn't exactly see the whole story. And maybe you might change your perception too. I don't know. Maybe this wasn't going to come down to the fact that there wasn't one single juror that was African American on the panel. You can tell me what you think when we're done here. What is for certain is that nobody was prepared for the outcome of this trial and what it was going to bring. So opening statements began on March 5, 1992. The deputy DA played the entire holiday videotape. Jurors would see the same tape over and over and over again throughout the duration of the trial. As for the defense, there was a split between them. Three of them blamed Rodney for the beating, telling jurors that it was he and he alone that was in complete control of the situation that unfolded on March 3, 1991. However, 
The attorney for Officer Brasino characterized Officer Powell as the one who was out of control, and the videotape would show that his client tried to intervene in an attempt to put a stop to the beating. You would think that the star witness for the prosecution would be Mr. Rodney King himself, but this would not be the case. He was not called to testify for a number of reasons. Firstly, the prosecution felt as though he was too drunk to remember much about the beating, but I don't think that's necessarily true. In researching the story, I found a number of interviews where Rodney is able to recount the events of that night point by point. His memory actually appears to be quite clear. Maybe having the videotape to reflect upon what happened may have helped, but he had actually been able to recall his thoughts and feelings as the event unfolded. And secondly, the prosecution felt like putting Rodney King on the stand would open him up to cross-examination by the defense attorneys, and that would be damaging to the prosecution's case. And what was of particular concern was Rodney's prior criminal offenses, which I spoke about earlier. They were concerned about how the jury would perceive Rodney if this were to come out in court. What's more is prosecutors were afraid that Rodney may lose his cool on the stand, possibly even losing his temper during cross-examination, and this may very well antagonize the jurors. They felt having Rodney on the stand would do more harm than good in the case, so they chose not to call him to testify. Their star witness would be Officer Melanie Singer, the CHP officer, along with her partner and husband, who initially attempted to pull Rodney over. She testified as to what she witnessed that night, how Officer Powell came up to the right side of Rodney, taking out his baton, having it in a power swing position, and struck him across the top of his cheekbone, effectively splitting Rodney's face from the top of his ear to his chin. She was asked if there was any reason for the strike to the head by Officer Powell at the time, and she answered that it was her opinion that there was no reason for it. However, Powell's attorney attempted to cast doubt on her account of what happened by dismissing her testimony that Rodney's face was split from ear to chin. He showed a photo taken at the hospital of Rodney's face, asking her if the wound in the picture appeared to be sutured. She said no. He asked her if it appeared to be split in the picture. She said no. And he asked her if she had any explanation for that. And she said, I saw what I saw. Other prosecution witnesses provided testimony in regards to statements made by Officer Powell that insinuated his callousness regarding what happened to Rodney. An LAPD communications officer told jurors about Powell's type messages to another officer after the beating. Two emergency room nurses recalled in their testimony overhearing Officer Powell say to Rodney that the incident was like a good hardball game and boasted that he hit quite a few home runs. Both nurses overheard those remarks, while one of them added that Powell told Rodney, we won, you lost. On cross-examination, Powell's attorney suggested that the remarks came from another officer. As for the defense, one of the first to take the stand was LAPD officer Susan Clemmer. She helped frame the incident as Rodney having been a scary suspect and scared officers. She said that Rodney spit blood at her and repeatedly laughed and said F you to the officers as he lay handcuffed on the road. 
She stated that Officer Powell told her at the time that he was scared and that the guy threw him off his back and that he thought he was going to have to shoot him. She also testified that later on at the emergency room that Rodney looked at Sergeant Kuhn and told him that he loved him. Of the four defendants, three of them took the stand. Sergeant Kuhn went first, and he came across very effectively. He testified that he came to the determination very quickly that Rodney was very dangerous and believed that he was an ex-convict who was high on PCP. He testified that he was concerned and frightened by Rodney. He talked about the use of force and how it escalates from verbal commands to swarming to the use of the taser and lastly, the metal batons. And he stated that this was the order in which things happened and in their encounter on March 3rd with Rodney King. On the stand, he appeared to sincerely believe that the use of force against Rodney that night was appropriate and controlled. And one of the most effective moments of his testimony came when his attorney asked him about what he was thinking when he saw CHP officer Melanie Singer approach Rodney with her gun in her hand. Sergeant Kuhn turned up the emotion, appearing to fight back tears and answered, they show you a picture when you are in the academy that was taken at the morgue. It's four highway patrol officers in full uniform on a slab and they're dead. It is the Newhall shooting. Incidentally, what Kuhn was referring to on the stand as the Newhall shooting has also been called the Newhall Massacre. It was a shootout between two heavily armed criminals and four California Highway Patrol officers in the unincorporated area of Los Angeles known as Newhall. It occurred on April 5, 1970, and in under five minutes, the four CHP officers were killed in what at the time was the deadliest event in the history of California law enforcement. So, the next witness to take the stand for the defense was an expert who did a frame-by-frame analysis of the videotape. And his testimony reinforced Kuhn's testimony that the force used on Rodney was reasonable. He testified that because the LAPD banned the use of chokeholds, a policy this witness had been openly critical of, that what is seen on the video is a result of departmental policies that leave police with few viable options short of deadly force. He testified that sometimes it becomes necessary to break a bone, and he stated unequivocally that every single one of the 56 baton blows the jurors saw on the video was justified. I want to stop here and talk about the chokehold for a minute, because it's been a long time since I've heard anyone be critical of its use being banned by law enforcement. It makes me wonder if he's ever been in a chokehold himself. I can't say that I have, and I hope I never experienced that, but it must be banned for a reason. Let me think. Okay, because it kills people unnecessarily, right? Right. It does exactly what you think it does. It prevents air, causing choking, and blood, causing strangling, from passing through a person's neck. The lack of air and blood will lead to unconsciousness, And if the hold is applied for too long of a period of time, death can and has resulted. In law enforcement, the chokehold is used to force an uncooperative person to submit without causing death or permanent injury. But it is imperative of the person applying the chokehold 
to be able to know the difference between an air chokehold and a blood chokehold. A hold that blocks both the left and right carotid arteries will cause there to be a lack of blood flow that results in a loss of consciousness in a couple of seconds. If the hold is applied properly, it almost immediately causes the person to stop resisting. But to avoid injury, the hold cannot be maintained for more than a few seconds. When pressure on the carotids is released, the flow of oxygenated blood resumes immediately and consciousness slowly returns. But if the airway is restricted instead of the carotid arteries, the person is unable to breathe, but the brain is still perfused with blood and will remain conscious. And most likely, the person will be continuing to struggle for as much as a minute or more. And what ends up happening is the person in the chokehold will lose consciousness when the oxygen in the circulating blood is consumed and collapses from hypoxia and oxygen deficiency in the tissues. Even if the hold is released and the person goes unconscious, the blood circulating in the brain doesn't have any oxygen in it, therefore causing the person to not regain consciousness on their own or to begin breathing on their own again. The vital element to the maneuver is to ensure the person in the hold needs to be constantly breathing freely, which means placing no pressure on the trachea. So I don't know how many police officers who applied chokeholds would be able to, in that moment while struggling with the suspect, were able to think back to their biology lessons, but ultimately, the tactic proved to be used recklessly and inappropriately by officers. Following a series of chokehold deaths, the LAPD banned the use of the chokehold in 1980, and soon, police departments across the country followed suit. By the early 90s, chokeholds were banned by almost every American police department. But, as you can see in the case of the death of Eric Gardner a couple years ago in Staten Island, New York, police are still using the chokehold, regardless of departmental policies banning the maneuver. And while we're on the subject of non-lethal weapons, the baton, a two-foot-long piece of solid aluminum, is still used in the LAPD. But there has been a drastic drop in the number of times it's being used, and this is a direct result of the Rodney King beating. In 1990, LAPD officers used their batons 741 times, more than any other weapon they had at their disposal. By 2015, LAPD officers used their batons 54 times. The taser was in its infancy at the time of Ronnie's beating, but now every officer carries one. Just the threat of it often gets suspects to comply. In 2015, it was used 519 times. So back to the trial. Lawrence Powell took the stand, and he was not nearly as effective as Kuhn or the expert with the video breakdown were before him. He was nervous. He was nervous and gave long, shaky answers to the questions from his attorney. He told jurors that he was in complete fear for his life. He was scared to death that if this guy, meaning Rodney, got back up, that he was going to take his gun away from him. But when the prosecutor had a chance to cross-examine him, he went straight to his gorillas in the mist comment. He asked Powell, Now, this call you were on, 
that involved these African Americans? Was it in a jungle? Powell asked, in a what? The prosecutor repeated, a jungle. Powell answered, no. The prosecutor asked if it was at the zoo. Powell answered, no. The prosecutor asked if there were any gorillas around. Powell answered, I didn't see any. Towards the end of his cross-examination, his defense of his actions boiled down to that he was just following orders. But the prosecutor pushed Powell to admit that everyone was ultimately responsible for their own actions. Defendant Theodore Brasino, as it would turn out, was a better witness for the prosecution than the defense. He testified that it was his thought that Officer Powell was out of control, and he had a look on his face that he had never seen before. It was his opinion that the beating was excessive, and that he tried to yell at Powell to get the hell off of King, but Powell ignored him. He testified that it was like when King moved, they hit him. He claimed that he did not understand what was going on out there, that the beating didn't make any sense to him. But the videotape did show Brasino stomp on Rodney's shoulders one time, at about the time that Powell seemed like he was reaching for his handcuffs. He explained that he was trying to get Rodney to stay down so that the other officers would stop hitting him with the baton. He said that he did that rather than put a knee on him as outlined in LAPD policy because he was afraid of getting struck by a baton if he was lowered to his knees. In his final plea to the jurors, the prosecutor told them to believe what their eyes were showing them when they look at the videotape beating of Rodney King. He dismisses the defense claims that the officers were following proper procedure when they kicked and beat Rodney 56 times with their batons. He held up Brasino's boots that were used to stomp Rodney and told them Brasino himself got caught up in the frenzy. He ridiculed Kuhn's description of the arrest as a managed and controlled use of force by calling it a managed and controlled cover-up. He also reminded the jury that Powell lied a total of 26 times on his report and in his testimony. He brought up the fact that Rodney had not been called to testify, asking the jurors what more could they ask for. You have that videotape that shows objectively, without bias, impartially, what happened that night. The videotape shows conclusively what happened. It cannot be rebutted. He finished his closing arguments by showing the video one last time and posed the questions to the jurors. Now, do you believe the defendants or your own eyes? As for the defense, they directed the four officers standing trial to face the jury. As they were told, there is no middle ground and there is no compromise. Either they acted like courageous, reasonable police officers or they acted like uniformed hoodlums. That's all there is to it. They don't get paid to roll around in the dirt with the likes of Rodney Glenn King, a felon and a drunk. They are, after all, the thin blue line that protects the law-abiding citizens in our communities from the criminal element. And if we demand that they engage in wrestling with hoodlums, that thin blue line will disintegrate. The attorney for Timothy Wind argued that the former rookie officer was only following the orders of his commanding officer, stating he did what he was told. He was not a wild, vicious man trying to inflict pain needlessly on Rodney King. And the attorney for Lawrence Powell 
pleaded with the jury to not make him a throwaway. He said, please do not make Larry Powell a compromise. The jury deliberated the fate of Stacy Kuhn, Lawrence Powell, Theodore Bracino, and Timothy Wind for seven days. At 3.15 p.m. on Wednesday, April 29, 1992, the court clerk announced the jury's verdicts. With the exception of being hung on one charge against Powell, they were all otherwise acquitted of all charges. Less than two hours later, the city of Los Angeles was up in flames. And with that, I'm going to end episode 32 at the onset of the Los Angeles riots. Don't worry, you are not going to have to wait until next Sunday for the remainder of this story. I'm aiming to have an early release of episode 33, hopefully by Tuesday. That's where we will take a look at the civil uprising that took place in the wake of the Rodney King beating trial acquittals. Where were you April 29, 1992? Anyone out there listening live near the rioting? Los Angeles wasn't the only city that experienced civil unrest in the wake of the acquittals. Join me for a conversation about this on the discussion page on Facebook and let me know what your reactions were then, if you're old enough, or what they are now in light of the story that I've just told you today about this event in American history. We are also going to discuss Rodney King after the beating, after the riots, and what direction his life went in the years since. Also, that wasn't the end of the legal battles for those four men who beat Rodney King that night. They weren't going to be off the hook that easily, and we'll talk about what ended up happening to them post-acquittal. I, again, cannot thank you enough for the continuing support of California Dreaming on Patreon. We've had a couple of new patrons this week, and I'm overwhelmed with the love and support from all of you. Not just on Patreon, but on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Everyone has been so kind and so fun to interact with. I've been a little bit behind, and it's mainly because the last few episodes have been kind of deep dives for me. I feel like I've been obsessing over each of the cases every week, every waking hour, just because there's so many details, and I have so much to say, and I don't want to miss anything. I'm trying to be better about my social media engagement and all that stuff, so thank you for your patience with me. I also need to thank each and every one of you for all your comments and feedback regarding last week's episode on Audrey Pot, and for reaching out to me and to tell me how much her story resonated with you. The response has been truly overwhelming, and I'm so glad that I shared it with you because I kind of second-guessed myself a lot. And I will share with you that right before I started recording the second half of this episode tonight, I did get a really crappy message from some guy who told me that I have my head so far up my ass because I refuse to lay any of the blame for what happened to Audrey on Audrey. He claims to have been a listener of the show and a big fan, but as soon as he heard the episode about Audrey Pot, he was never going to listen to another episode again. Now, all I have to say about that 
is if you've been listening to me and my show all this time, you should have known me well enough by then to know that I'm never, ever, ever going to victim blame in my show. And that's basically what it all boiled down to, that I wasn't holding Audrey responsible for any part of her actions that night. And that's not going to change. I laid the blame on those three boys that assaulted her that night. End of story. And I'm going to just leave it at that. As you know, California Dreaming has found a home on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We have joined forces with an amazing group of podcast shows and hosts, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, The Dirty Bits, Historium, Is This Adulting, 41 Owned, and Film Roast. You can find all of us on www.orbitaljigsaw.com. And guess what? We have also launched the Orbital Jigsaw Podience Facebook group. All of us from Orbital Jigsaw are there, along with a bunch of other hosts from some of your favorite shows and some of our biggest and best podcast listeners and fans. It's more than just talking about our shows, but rather, it's an interactive group where we share ideas, articles, and news about all things podcast and social media related, and much more. It's a fun place to get new ideas, share your experiences as both a host and a listener, and find out what's working and what doesn't. It's a supportive, inclusive, drama-free group. Search Orbital Jigsaw Podience, spelled P-O-D-I-E-N-C-E, and request to join. Also on OrbitalJigsaw.com, you can find links to the Orbital Jigsaw Network merchandise store. You can get your California Dreaming t-shirt, mug, throw pillow, phone case, tote bag, and much more. Every purchase supports the creation of this show. I have a few Twitter shoutouts. Thank you to all of you for supporting and listening and helping to spread the word about this little show. Eric A., who didn't want a shoutout, but always has so many kind things to say on Twitter. The Truest of Crimes... The Hidden Staircase Podcast, The Les Mordia Podcast, Crime Smith, A True Crime Podcast, Murderous Miners Podcast, Mike Brown, the host of the Dark Poutine Podcast, Eye for an Eye, who incidentally I got to know this week and I binge listened to some of their episodes and they're pretty good. If you like a conversational, kind of off the cuff, friends talking about crime kind of a show, they focus on figuring out if the punishment fits the crime. And back to Twitter shoutouts. Whining about crime, mysterious circumstances with my very good friend Justin, Daniel F, Podcast Central, Wives Tales, Wine and Punishment, Of Myth and Mercy, and Tanner's Voice, which, by the way, is a Twitter page dedicated to seeking justice for Tanner Barton, who died under highly suspicious circumstances at the home of a friend on April 22nd, 2012. If you would like to hear more about his story, the Minds of Madness podcast just did an amazing two-part series on Tanner's story. I also wanted to share with you this week that Promote the Pods, that's the Twitter handle, has a blog at promotethepods.com, and last week wrote an amazing blog post about California Dreaming. 
and I'm so honored and so overwhelmed at the kind things that she had to say. Please visit her blog for more reviews and recommendations at promotethepods.com. I also have for you two promos from two of my favorites that I wanted to share with you. One is from The Hidden Staircase, and one is from Lismordia. Take a listen. Murder. Do you have anything to say on why you should not die according to the law? Mysteries. A dreadful accident has happened at Flannan's. The three keepers, Ducket, Marshall, and the occasional have disappeared from the island. Join us at the Hidden Staircase podcast, where every two weeks I will bring you stories and cases you've probably never heard. You can find us on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to lock your doors and hold tight to your flashlight. Hi, I'm Lucy Mortem. And my name is Ginny. And we invite you to join us every week on Les Mordia, where we discuss our favorite true crime topics. But not just true crime, any and all things dark and mysterious that pertain to the human psyche. Cults, conspiracy, weird pop culture. But hey, we're not professionals and we're often inappropriate. We really bank on you finding that charming, though. <laughs> so turn out the lights, lock the doors, and find us on your favorite podcast app. Thank you again, and keep your eyes peeled for episode 33. You are not going to have to wait a week if all things go right. We will go through the civil unrest that erupted in the wake of the verdicts rendered in the criminal case against those officers who beat Rodney King, what happened next to those key players involved in the case, and we will take a look at Rodney's life after the beating. Thank you again, and until next time, sweet dreams.